revered by every single um, Thai subject of his. In fact, when there was civil unrest in the country and the demonstrations got out of hand, it, it merely took the king of Thailand to stand up before his people and to tell them, stop your demonstrations, behave like Thai ought to behave. And at his word, the people would literally stop their demonstrations, pick up their stuff and go home. Now, do you realize that we also have a king? His name is Jesus. And what do you think people say about us who belong to his kingdom? Do they say that his subjects, his people don't really respect him? Or do they say that at his command, at his word, his people will drop everything and follow in obedience? The words that we read today in the Gospel of Matthew are Jesus' final words before he ascended into heaven and was enthroned in glory. And the message that we have for us today is to hear these final words again and to allow them to renew our passion for missions, to help shape our perspective of what missions is even all about. And finally, to give us all a sense of purpose as citizens who belong to this kingdom. I think the first thing the Lord is communicating to us this afternoon is that we really don't deserve to be a part of this kingdom-building missions work. Can you imagine what must have been going on in those disciples' minds? as they heard the news from Mary Magdalene that early Sunday morning. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. And he wants to meet us in Galilee. You see, just three days earlier, they saw their Lord. They saw their Savior. They saw Jesus nailed to a cross. They saw his body limp. They saw him die. And so you can imagine them wondering, how could he be alive? We should note that Galilee, the place where they were to meet Jesus, was actually not where they were. They were in Jerusalem, about 60 to 75 miles away, and so it probably took them about four or five days to travel together to Galilee. Can you imagine what they must have been talking about as they traveled together to Galilee? Perhaps their minds flash back to the last time they were all together in the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps echoing in their ears were the words of their Lord. So you can't even keep watch with me for one hour. Rise, let's go. Behold, my betrayers are at hand. And when the angry crowd came, if you remember the scene with clubs and spears, what happened to all his disciples? Every single one of them left him. Every single one fled and abandoned him. Certainly, Peter must have remembered how Jesus looked at him in the courtyard of the high priest after the rooster crowed. And so I can imagine these disciples walking to the place where they would meet Jesus filled with conflicting emotions. Not only wonder and awe that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is really alive. 
but also shame and a sense of guilt and maybe even fear that they would have to face the one that they denied, face the one that they abandoned. When I was about uh, 10 years old, um, a friend of ours and my older brother, he's about a year older than me, were playing at a nearby park at our house. And we were there, and uh, in our neighborhood were these older bullies. And they were pretty far away from us at the time, and, and they were just trying to, to throw these water balloons at us, and they were calling us names. And, you know, at 10 years old, you don't know much better, so we just kind of yelled back at them. Um, can't remember exactly what we yelled, but it was enough to get them quite angry at us. We didn't expect what would happen next. They started chasing after us. What would you have done? Well, we were frightened as kids, uh, so we all had our bikes here. We jumped on our bikes, and we just pedaled as fast as we could back home where it was safe on our front lawn. And sure enough, I was the first back because I was probably the most scared. And I just remember hearing all this screaming. I was screaming. Our hearts were racing. And right next to me, my friend came on his bike. And then we looked back, and there was my brother a block away. The chain had fallen off his bike. And sure enough, those bullies came and they took a couple cheap shots at him, took off. And there he was, uh, angry, uh, crying, uh, humiliated. And so he picks up his bike and he he walks that block of shame to us. We're just standing watching this. Uh, He throws down his bike. He comes up to me and he slugs me in the stomach and he says, where were you? Didn't you hear me cry for help? Of course, I I really didn't hear him. I was too busy trying to get home myself. After this, we asked our dad to teach us Taekwondo. Didn't last very long. You see, we should expect Jesus to come to his disciples and to slug them in the stomach, right? And to say, where were you? Where were you when I needed you most? But you see, Jesus, he doesn't. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't mention their sins. He doesn't mention their failures. In fact, when he meets Mary Magdalene, he tells her, go and tell my my brothers to meet me in Galilee. He still calls them his brothers, even Peter. And when they do meet on the mountain, he doesn't recount all of their failures, all of their sins. Not even the fact that when some were standing before him, they doubted him. In fact, Jesus doesn't mention any of these things. And what we have here is a picture of God's grace and his mercy. What did they deserve? They deserved to be abandoned. They deserve to be denied before the Father. They deserve to be excluded from his kingdom. But instead of rebuke Jesus, he forgives them. And he enlists them into his kingdom service to complete what he began. And this is such a clear picture of God's grace. And we ask ourselves, well, who are these disciples And the truth is, it's us. We're just like them. We're hesitant. 
doubtful, still full of fear, still full of doubts. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone that I have offended or sinned against that I actually respect overlooks my sin, I can't help but respect them more. And when he demonstrates to me that my relationship with him is so secure that there's no strings attached to his love and affection for me, I can't help but reciprocate love and affection for him. And when I am convinced that I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not in front of him, that he knows me completely for who I am with all of my mistakes and all my failures and all my brokenness and still loves me, I can't help but be passionate for what he's passionate for. Where does passion for missions come from? Our passion for missions comes from our passion for our Lord and Savior who lived and died for us. Our passion for missions comes because he is passionate for missions and we love him. You see, this is not guilt trip motivation for missions. I'm sure you've heard sermon after sermon about feeling guilty about not being involved in missions. This is just the opposite, but it it springs from a sincere sense of gratitude, a sincere sense of thankfulness, of respect and love and admiration for our Lord. And the more that we dwell upon his mercy for us, his grace for us, the more fuel that we add to missions fire in our hearts. And so, yes, we do not deserve any of us to be a part of this kingdom building work and yet he calls us by his grace the second thing that I believe the Lord is telling us today is that we don't have to be afraid to engage in missions why it is because Jesus our sender has been given all authority, both in heaven and on earth. And when we go, we go with his authority and with his power. My fear, however, is that we don't really believe this. We don't believe that Jesus really has all authority and power. We don't believe that we could even engage in missions, whether supporting, whether praying for, whether going, with his power, with his authority. Oftentimes, we fall into one of two extremes. The first is being utterly fearful and anxious about engaging in missions. We think how ill-equipped we are, perhaps, ill-equipped even to share our faith, ill-equipped to even begin praying whether God is calling us to serve him overseas. And even those who are called and know that they're called to support and pray, we are hesitant, we are doubtful to give what is more than comfortable. Why? Because we're afraid. Do we believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? And do we believe that we send support and that we go in his authority with his power? 
The other extreme, of course, in missions is being overly confident in our own authority. We think that maybe because we're educated or because we're wealthy or because we're from the United States that somehow the world has to listen to our message. And we go out and we do missions in our own confidence, in our own strength. As was mentioned earlier, actually our first mission field was the Philippines. And um, when we arrived there, I had an opportunity to visit the seminary in Cavite, near Metro Manila. Um, When I came to the campus, I was thinking about all the years of training that I went through, all the hours and hours of studying, thinking about all of this was for these students. And now I would finally have an opportunity Uh, to serve them. While I was on campus, I met a couple students who were quite friendly, and uh, uh, they introduced themselves to me, and I I said uh, who I was. And then one of them turned to me and asked, so tell me, what what year in school are you here? I said, what? (laughs) They thought I was a student. I was so offended. But of course, as a missionary, you can't be really proud, so I kind of try and play it off and said, well, actually, I I don't go to school here. And he replied, are you going to (laughs) apply? Needless to say, God was telling me something about my own preoccupation with my own authority. And so we need to ask, what kind of authority are we basing our confidence upon? Is it worldly authority, education, money, power? Or do we believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and that we send, that we support, and that we go and engage in missions with his authority. The truth is only by the power and authority of Christ given to us by his Holy Spirit can any of us contribute anything of lasting value to his kingdom. You see, the promise that he gives us at the end of this very familiar passage, behold, I will be with you even to the end of the age. It's not this picture of somehow Jesus hovering over us and watching us wherever we go, but it's rather, I believe, a promise of his Holy Spirit indwelling us and equipping us to this task of missions. Do you believe this? You see, this teaching should give us both humility and confidence at the same time. It should give us who are hesitant and doubtful confidence, knowing that Christ is calling us to a task that cannot fail and equipping us with a power that has no bounds. At the same time, it should give us who are overly confident humility, knowing that it's not our power, it's not our authority by which the kingdom of God advances. And so this is the perspective that Jesus is teaching us today as we begin to think about engaging in this kingdom commission. And so the Lord is telling us, number one, we don't deserve to participate in this kingdom-building work, and yet he calls us by his grace. 
And secondly, he says, quite honestly, we cannot do this work in our own strength, but we certainly can by his. And finally, the Lord is telling us that every one of us who calls himself a disciple of Jesus needs to be involved in this kingdom-building work. Every one of us needs to be involved in making disciples. Let's break that down just a little bit from our passage. What are those two main tasks that Jesus associates with making disciples? Well, the first is baptism. The second is teaching, teaching all that I have commanded you. We ask, why baptism? Baptism signifies one's entrance into the community of Jesus' disciples. It requires a radical commitment not only to the Lord, but to his people. Essentially saying, I am dying to self and am reborn by the power of the Spirit, equipped with the Spirit. It is in essence a declaration that I am a follower or a disciple of Jesus. Why teaching? Teaching is the means that God uses to mature and nurture his disciples as those who belong to his kingdom. And so not only are we to lead people to this radical commitment to follow Jesus, but we are to nurture them along in faith, teaching them everything that Jesus commands. But the truth is we cannot make disciples unless we first are disciples. So let me ask you, have you made that radical commitment to following the Lord wholeheartedly? And are you committed to a lifetime of learning in the gospel of grace? Part and parcel of teaching everything that Jesus commands is this teaching to go and make disciples. And so you see, part of being a disciple in its very definition is making disciples. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not ready for that. I'm not equipped for that. Isn't it the pastor's job to baptize and teach? Yes, of course, God has his ordained servants for these unique functions. But you see in this command to teach, everything that Jesus commands is his teaching to go. And so every disciple of Jesus needs to be involved in either sending, supporting, or going to the nations. Four pastors uh, go to a restaurant. And they are seated and wait patiently for the waitress to come. She delays, takes a long time. Finally, when she does meet them at the table, she takes the menus, throws them down on the table and says, what do you want? They are so disturbed by her rudeness, their whole meal is ruined. Finally, after they're done eating, the most senior pastor calls the waitress over. He pays the bill, but he wants to have a word with her. He looks her in the eye and he says to her, seems like you've had a really hard day today. Here, take this as a gift. And he hands her a $100 bill. She is so moved by this act of kindness that she starts to cry and pour out her heart. And right there, the pastor shares with her the gospel of Jesus and the hope that we have 
in our Savior. And there she says, yes, I want to follow Jesus, commits her life to following him. Well, out in the parking lot, the pastor took his three co-workers aside and, and told them, and now I want each of you to give me $25. You see, every one of us can be involved in making disciples. Some giving, some leading people to this radical commitment to follow Jesus. But of course, what are Jesus' teachings? Well, they're gospel teachings, aren't they? So we don't have to teach our disciples that they have to have these perfect Christian lives. Discipleship is simply showing someone else how to apply the gospel to all the areas of our life, whether that's our marriage, whether that's how we raise our kids, or how we think about work, or how we think about singleness. When the center of discipleship is the gospel, then the focus is less on us and more on Christ. And so we don't have to pretend to be something we're not with those we seek to reach. Our message is we're just as messed up as you are, maybe more. We're just as broken as you are, maybe more. And that we need to daily feed on the gospel of grace. And we daily need to confess our sins, our anxieties, our worries, our pride. And so what is discipleship? Well, it's just showing one being a beggar, showing another beggar where to find bread. Now, we can certainly be involved in making disciples here in the city. Many nations have come. But you see, this commission of our Lord does not change regardless of the circumstances we're in. It's still true today as it was when it was first commanded. And that is to go. To go to the nations in order to fulfill God's redemptive purposes for this world. And so Jesus, our King, risen from the dead, exalted to the highest place, calls us his citizens to carry forth his message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And you see, this this isn't optional for us. It's not something we do if we have extra time. It's included in the very definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so you see, it helps us define our purpose and calling in life as we remain here until he takes us home. And so let me ask, beloved, do we respect our king? Our king has delivered us from the bondage of sin and from the fear of death. Our king has set us free. So let us respect our king. And may his vision for the nations and the coming of the kingdom of God be our vision as well. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we just commit these words into your hands and into our hearts and ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us by your grace to convict us, to challenge us, to stretch us, 
to look beyond ourselves and to look to the needs not only of those here, but to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for your message.